I want to talk to you today, as I do any day, but in particular, the Lord's Day, I want to talk about God. Surprise, surprise. And so let me begin this morning just by saying that uh, there, there is a God who exists. And this is not just any old God. This is not a generic God. Lots of people will say, oh yeah, you know, I believe in God. And you know, you sneeze at, uh, at the store or whatever, and you might get a God bless you from a stranger. But who is the God in whom you are blessing me? Now, that might be entirely awkward to ask at Ralph's at the, at the checkout or whatever, but it, it, it is a question that is important to raise. What God are we talking about, for Pete's sake? There is a God who is, and there is a God that people want. There is a God that people believe in, and there is a God who is. And often, most often, the two are not the same. I come today to talk about God. I come today to proclaim God, to herald God, not just any old God, but the God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. This God who is the true and living God, the only God who is, this God who created the world, who is sovereign over His creation, who is unfolding a plan within human history to display His glory and His love. Now, the state of the world that we see today is far from His love as we look around, and even within, it's far from His love, which should be no surprise to us, in particular those who read the Scriptures, for we know how the creation unraveled, and, and we know that this great love of this eternal triune God was revolted against. It was an un, it's a story of an unrequited love, of a God who pours out His love, and of a creation that rejects His love, and as a result, the world is the way that it is. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I stood up here on a Sunday morning and I offered a sermon entitled, What's Going On? Reflecting on that church shooting on May 15th, 2022 in Laguna Woods here in the lovely state of California in which an evil man entered a church and shot six people, one of which died. The day before that, on May 14th in, in New York, there was a wicked man who opened fire at a supermarket, killing 10 and wounding three others. The month before, on April the 12th, the New York City subway, there was a deranged man who killed 10 people and injured 19 others. And so two weeks ago, I stopped and said, what, what is going on? I want to help the church reflect on this. People ask in, in times of evil, you know, they say, why, why do these things happen? And and it's an opportunity for us to talk about God. Now, granted, the culture uses it as an opportunity for politicization. We're going to talk about, you know, guns and this president and that president and this governor and that governor and this bill and that bill. And not that those conversations aren't important. But we have a message. Indeed, we have a mandate that is vastly superior, that is liberating. And so in times like this, when people begin to ask these questions, you know, my burden is that, that the people of God will respond with the word of God and not allow the divides of the culture and the darkness of the culture to derail us. So I offer that message. What's, what's going on on May 15th? And last week, standing in front of you last week, I offered a message, where was God on Tuesday? Where was God on Tuesday? Because that week, on, on, on May 24, 2022, there was another wicked man who shot his grandmother in the face and then went down to a, an elementary school and in cold blood he 
murdered 19 children and two teachers, two, two adults. Where is God? Where is God? And yet again, it's an opportunity for the fallen world to begin to point fingers and say, it's your fault that this shooting happened because you believe X. No, 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 it's your fault because you believe Y. No, 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 it's your fault because you voted for M. No, it's your fault because you voted for L. Behaving just like the children of Adam and Eve. Behaving just like their mother and father. Blame shifting and looking for answers in all of the wrong places. We have the answers here. And so the burden then for, for, for the minister of the Word of God is to call the people of God to this and to say, church, look here. And again, it's not to say that maybe some of the, some of the hey, your policy and hey, your guy is, is culpable in this. I'm, to, you know, I'm totally for having those conversations, to be sure. But I sure hope that the people of God don't come on a Sunday morning eager to hear Pastor Matt Jones's public policy solutions. And we've seen a lot of that in recent years, where, where, where ministers have become politicians and epidemiologists and the rest, and people come craving to hear, I want to know what you think about that. And again, if you want to know what I think about something, feel free to just talk to me and say, hey, what do you think about this? And I'll tell you what I think, and it could be right or wrong. I, I mean, beats me. But I tell you what's not right or wrong. I tell you what's not beats me. It's the word of the Lord. So we gather with the word of the Lord, and we come to hear the word of the Lord, and I stand before you, church, to vulnerably say to you, I just feel burdened. I feel burdened. The divides and the confusion of the culture, I feel burdened seeing believers tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of these cultural issues, wherein we have an opportunity to have a very, very, very important and timely conversation about God. And so I, I want to continue uh, building on this, and this is what I've been doing in, in recent weeks. If you're here for the first time this morning, I, I've just kind of launched a little mini-series here called Making Sense of Violence. And while typically I like to exposit God's Word, moving verse by verse and chapter by chapter, at, at, at times in the teaching of the church we'll pause to tackle topics that are important, so we'll look at the full canopy of the canon of scripture and we'll say what does the bible have to say with regard to this god's revealed himself in the scripture so let's let's look at the totality of the scripture this this is one book but you know there are 66 different books in here that are unfolding over an era of time that are telling a story of redemption and so we're going to look at it and say lord how do how do we make sense out of this lord equip your church for such a time as this and, and this week, I found myself engaging people who I care about, who are, are far from the God who is, worried for, their, for their, their everlasting state in the afterlife as they stand rejecting God and, and laboring with them in this moment to answer this question, you know, where was God on Tuesday? What's going on? And the conversation that I've been having and one that I, I see going on in the news is, you know, like, is, is, what's going on with your God, you Christians? You know, why is he letting all of this happen? And so this morning I want to offer an, an, another sermon in this little series, Making Sense of Violence, that I've entitled, Does God Get Punked? Now, colloquially, people in our culture talk about getting punked. In fact, there was a television show called Punked. It was a hidden television camera show. Uh, I actually have never watched it, but, you know, seen some clips of it. It's hosted, it was hosted and produced by Ashton Kutcher. 
I guess it's sort of like a Gen X version of the old candid camera for our older saints in the room. You remember candid camera? And, and instead of being pranked, though, you get punked, meaning you've become the rear of a joke. It's, it's sort of candid camera on crack. It's a little more intense, a little more in your face, but that's what Gen X does, right? They just push it in your face. I'm Gen X, so I, you know, I can say that. But the best part is instead of pranking the average Joes, uh, Ashton Kutcher goes after celebrities, and I, I do like it. I do like, uh, you know, that I, I, I like seeing that, you know, that sort of bring it, bring it down, bring it, bring it down those guys to that, the average level. So the practical joke, you know, you, you get a celebrity, and then it's revealed with the tagline, you just got punked. And the show even has a punked awards for those that really got punked really good. Now, playing on the nomenclature and the concept of being caught off guard, I want to explore in the message today the question, is God ever caught off guard by human history? Does God ever get punked? Now, let me say up front, uh, you know, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> no, amen, uh, no, God doesn't get punked. He is not caught off guard. He is never informed. He never learns anything. He never acquires knowledge. He is perfect and complete and total knowledge. He's never punked. That said, let's look at the issue and let's look at some other weightier things in regard to this catchy title that I put before you. This morning, I'm going to be picking up where I left off last week. Last week, we began in the book of Genesis and we studied the fall of humanity what I started with this morning, the God who is, Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who created in His unrequited love. And, and I made reference to Adam and Eve. Those are the, the first humans that God created, and they rebelled against God. And therein, in our study last week, we discovered the origins of the violence that we see in the earth. When we're watching the news and saying what's going on, well, you go back to the origins account, and it makes sense out of this. Now, further, we, we probe not just the origins in creation, Looking at the material realm of man and earth, further, we looked at the immaterial cosmic realm of angels, and we saw last week in our study the fall of angels. We saw the devil specifically, who is depicted in the book of Genesis as a serpent, and I'm going to say some more about the serpent. Last week we talked about the serpent, and I said this week I'd say some more, so more on that in just a moment, but hang on, we talked about the serpent, we talked about the fall. We talked about the creation order not just being material, but there's an immaterial realm that overlaps with it. And when we forget that, we are watching the news and trying to make sense out of it naturalistically because we forget that there's a supernatural realm that overlaps with these things. And so in that supernatural realm, we, we see that there's an origins account of a rebellion there among angels. We see that the, the head of this, the atom of that, if you will, is the devil. We looked in the book of Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, and as a cross-reference, I gave you Isaiah 14, where the prophets uh, speak to these fallen earthly rulers who are possessed with the devil and uses this language uh, wherein the origins account of the fall of the demons is recounted. We read on the lips of Jesus, write it down, Luke 10, 18. Jesus speaks of the devil falling from heaven like a bolt of lightning. In Scripture, Isaiah 14, 12, uh, the devil is described as a star. The demons in Revelation 12, 4 are described as fallen stars. And so stars falling from the sky, lightning falling from the sky, this imagery is very fitting that we find on the lips of our Lord that we see in the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel. In summary, what we saw last week is the devil is in the details. If we think these, these murderers, if you want to look at it and go, you know, this policy is default, that politician's default, and you miss the powers of the prince of the air and the forces of darkness, 
your account does not account for the phenomenon that we are watching on the news. If we are trying to make sense of the violence without a biblical worldview of the universe being more than just matter, more than just men, if we are not taking into account the devil, who Peter describes as being on the prowl like a, like a roaring lion on the go, then we are going to miss what's going on. What is going on? It's demonic. It's demonic. There are angels who roam the earth sow discord and darkness and death. Now, on this note, I am aware that when you start talking about angels and spiritual beings, you know, secular, the secular culture, atheists and what have you, are going to go, that just sounds crazy. That sounds crazy. You believe in angels, that sounds crazy. Now, I find it fas fascinating, however, that secularists, while they will balk at the Bible and the belief in supernatural beings like angels and demons, at the same extent, when you begin to talk to them about things like UFOs and aliens, oh, they're quite interested in those. Um, I, I have in mind Joe, the Joe Rogans, et cetera, in the culture who everyone listens to and are informed by and shaped by. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, the Bible, yeah, that's dumb. And they use super bad arguments. And then you bring up UFOs or something. They're like, oh, yeah, there's totally something to that. And I go, oh, wait a second. So you believe in extraterrestrial beings then? Well, isn't that what angels are, right? So in, anyway, let me get back on point. Uh, I'm talking about last week's message because I'm building. Now, if you missed last week's message, please go online, listen to it. I'm trying to make these messages self-contained as much as possible. But in talking about this topic, there's just a, a lot that you got to do to help form a framework for making sense out of this. And you just can't do that in one Sunday morning. So we, we kind of have to build. And so as a result, by way of introduction, I have to remind you of, of, of some things that we have covered. So I have to remind you of the creation, of the unrequited love, of, of, of this world being made up of, of matter and immaterial realities, of, of men and of angels, of demons. And, 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 and this morning, by way of introduction, what I want to do is I want to talk about God's power because, as I said, there is the claim on the table that God is being punked in these instances. And so to get a good picture of God's power, let's open up our Bibles. And would you find your way to the prophet Isaiah? Now, there are many places that we could turn to in the Scripture to see God's power. But I want to take you to the book of Isaiah. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, we would love to give you one. There's some in the entryway, and of course, you can also use uh, technology and use an app or go online, but please do. Make sure that you open the text to Isaiah. We will be in the sixth chapter. Of all the places that we could turn to in the Bible to uh, start by way of introduction, thinking about God's power in light of the proposition that he's being punked, there are many places we can turn. The penultimate, the climax of God's power, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We could also go to the plagues of Egypt or Elijah on Mount, Mount Carmel or we could go to the book of Revelation. There's lots of places that we could go, but I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 6. And so you'll see, you'll see then on your outline Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, by way of context, lived in Jerusalem around 740 B.C. He was a prophet and a court preacher, focusing his words to the leaders of Israel and their sins against God. Now during this time, God was allowing the people to undergo and to suffer at the hands of evil in the world, specifically to be conquered by foreign powers as a result of their unfaithfulness. In Isaiah's time, they were being threatened by this advancing evil empire, the Assyrian Empire. It was a scary time. It was a dark time. And into this time, we see God's power. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah, 
in the year of his death, I saw the Lord. Tell me about it, Isaiah. Well, he was sitting on a throne. He was lofty and exalted. And the train of his robe was filling the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. Two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called out to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who was called out while the temple was filling with smoke. It's a very powerful scene. The shaking, this power, these great angelic beings, this king who is on the throne, whose train fills the whole place. You see, kings, they, they wore long robes as an indication of status. His, his robe doesn't have an end to it in the revelation of Isaiah. Oh, I could preach on this for hours. I could preach on this for hours. Some of you are like, yeah. Some of you are like, I got lunch plans, so don't worry. It's a, it is a powerful picture to begin with to the question of his God getting punked. Now, in the time that we have, I want to zoom in on some things to, to build from last week, and specifically, I, I, I want to build on this idea that the world is material and immaterial. Isaiah is in the temple in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden he enters into the temple in heaven. You know from having been taught in this church about tabernacle, temple, porthole, heavens, earth, he experiences the porthole. He's brought into the heavens. The temple is the place of sacrifice where humanity is reminded that they're not in the garden anymore, that they are far from God, that, that, that death has come to the creation, that innocence has been lost. And, and they're at the place of the temple that's, that's showing all these gospel realities to the people. He's, he's ushered in the heavens and he's seen the courtroom of God. And there he sees these great beings. That's what I want to focus in on because it builds on what we were looking at last week. Ezekiel, specifically. So, so Ezekiel, if you recall, we looked at Ezekiel and the fall of the angel, the devil, Lucifer, Satan. We studied that in Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel's uh, passage opens with Ezekiel having a very similar porthole experience. However, because Ezekiel is in exile, he isn't in the temple in Jerusalem where the porthole opens up in, in, in Jerusalem, but Ezekiel opens with a portable temple. There's wheels and images and what have you, and this portable temple comes to Ezekiel, and he's caught up. They're in exile, and so God brings the heavenly temple to him. And Ezekiel has revelation. Isaiah has revelation. In Isaiah's revelation, what is the, what, draw your eyes at the text. What are the names of the beings? Audience participation? Seraphim. Seraphim. These are fascinating angelic creatures that have animalistic appearances. In fact, they appear reptile-like, which you don't exactly see when you're only reading the English text. Now, in the Bible, angels appear often uh, as men sometimes. We have instances where they manifest in terms of men, and so like Hebrews uh, uh, makes this line about sometimes there are angels among us and we don't even notice they can manifest as men. But in many other instances in the Bible, angels appear with beastly characteristics. They, they, they appear uh, with beastly characteristics. And, and this appears to be the case because there's different kinds of angels, so they have different kinds of appearances. And in the case of the appearance of the seraphim, they look like reptiles. They say, I don't see that in my English Bible. How do you know that? Well, in the original text, seraph, by the way, eem is how you pluralize something. We add an S to things, they get an eem. So seraphim, seraphs, 
in the Hebrew, uh, that is a term for serpent. Now, the related noun for the, the verb, the related uh, verb for the noun, uh, seraph, it is often translated as fiery. And so these uh, then are thought to be these intense, fiery, serpent-looking, beastly angels. Isaiah describes them as having six wings. With two of their wings, they cover their face. With two of their wings, they cover their feet. So they are fiery, seraph, but God is brighter. The Bible describes God as a consuming fire. And so though they are fiery, they must shield themselves. They must cover themselves. He, he, is, uh, he, he the God who sits on the throne, is overwhelming to these beastly characters. If you were walking down an alley at night and you saw these characters, you would drop dead. You would run for your life. They're intimidating. They're powerful. They're freakish. They're, 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 they're scary. But when they stand in the presence of God, oh, they, they tremble. They tremble. The whole room is trembling in Isaiah. With two wings, they cover their face. With two wings, they cover their feet. They must hide in the presence of the holy God. And with two wings, they, they, they are above the, the, the throne of the God we read here. Now, now, it's frankly supposed to be scary. It's a theophanic throne room of God. The portholes have opened. Isaiah is brought there. The angelic realm is there. And it's absolutely intense. Uh, so, 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 so by way of cooperation, so you see some support to these things, let me show you a, a noted Hebrew scholar, David Barker. And he observes seraphim, the Hebrew plural of seraph, Seraphim, as I, as I told you, are one of two types of heavenly beings that are mentioned by Isaiah. The other are the cherubim, which you can read about in 37, uh, the, the latter having a single pair of wings are associated closely with the throne, while the seraphs are flying above it, the throne. The Hebrew term itself, and its verb, means burning, which has led some to associate them with lightning. Going back to what I said in the beginning about uh, the, the angels falling and Jesus like lightning. But seraphs are not associated elsewhere with fire, but with serpents. Look at Isaiah 14, 29 and 30, verse 6. Possibly alluding to the metaphorical burn of Vedim. When you're bit by a poisonous snake, you, you burn. The serpents biting the Israelites in the wilderness are called seraphs. When you look at Numbers 21. The ancient Near East does know of serpents associated with divinity as well as royalty. The seraph is also found in numerous seals, often winged, Though those having three pairs are rare, most of them actually have four in the ancient world. A number of these have been found in Israel. So these figures were familiar to Isaiah and to his readers. So this theophanic vision, of course, would be something that would readily make sense to them. This is divine. This is royal. This is intense. In Dr. Barker's commentary uh, uh, in the book of Isaiah, he gets into the ancient images of the serpents. And in his textbook, he actually has some and I'll, I'll put some of them in front of you so you can see from uh, artifacts from the ancient world that have been dug up where you see this image of snakes and winged creatures around royal and divine thrones. Here you see the clay bulla, which is decorated with two winged serpents. The inscription reads, belonging to Amos, the servant of Hezekiah. You know, Amos in the Bible, Hezekiah in the Bible. Uh, secondly, here you see the, this, this winged creature from Tel Halaf. Uh, thirdly, here you see the throne of Pharaoh uh, Tutankhamun. Uh, with features of armrests that are picturing winged serpents that are flanking the king, reminiscent of the seraphim that we see here in Isaiah. All of this to say, Pastor Matt, why are you talking about this? Because I'm building on what I was talking about last week. And what was I talking about last week? Ezekiel 28. What was I talking about last week? Material realm, immaterial realm. Last week, demons, darkness. You can't make sense out of this violence unless you have a worldview that accounts for this. Follow me, follow me. 
the devil, Ezekiel 28, the demons, okay, entering, bringing discord, death, darkness. And then we went to the book of Genesis. And what did we see in Genesis chapter 3? A serpent, didn't we? We saw a serpent. And I shared with you last week, you ever read the text and you go, why isn't Adam like surprised by this? There's a talking serpent in the garden. And I shared with you last week, well, on the one hand, you know, like everything's new to him, so he doesn't know what's normal. If you're in a place where everything's new, you don't know to go, hey, that's weird. Well, you, everything's weird. It's all brand new. Duh. But on the other hand, it's actually quite normal because we read in the book of Genesis that there are angels inside of the garden. Uh, in the exile, we see the angels stationed at the borders of Eden. There are angels that are walking in the Garden of Eden, along with God who's walking in the Garden of Eden. The immaterial and the material realm overlap that way. Adam was given dominion not just over vegetation in the animal kingdom, he was given dominion over the angelic as well. And so there, there he is in this, this temple. The, Eden was the temple of God. And in the temple of God there are angels. And here's an angel who comes up to him in Genesis 3 and says, Hey, what has God told you? And Adam doesn't think anything about it because he, he dwells among angels and creatures. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 28. I'll put it in front of you so you can keep Isaiah open. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You, like the devil, every precious stone was your covering. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were blameless in all your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Those are the origins of sin. It's within. Can't point the finger at anyone else. It's pointing at your chest, buddy. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned, and therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Eden was the temple of God. It was the mountain of God. It's where God was, the tree of life, giving life to creation. And your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. So you see the fall. Notice this corruption. It begins in his chest, as I said. Notice his quest here in the text for wisdom by his own understanding. Doesn't the wisdom literature have a lot to say about not seeking things on your own understanding, but forsaking your own understanding? And our, our culture is constantly feeding us the opposite. It's demonic. You, you want to find happiness in life? Follow what's inside of you. No, don't do that. That's how this whole thing started. There was an angel in a garden with sin in his chest. And he hated God. And he uplifted himself because he wanted his way and not God's way. You can't tell me what to do. This is my body. This is my way. Don't we hear those voices still? It's my choice. I'm autonomous. No, you're not. I give you life, mister. All right, well, we'll, 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 we'll see how that pans out for you. And he falls. Oh, he hates God, so what does he do? He goes after the image of God. He sees those made in his image and he goes right up to him and goes, hey, how do you like it? Someone telling you what to do? How do you like it? Someone telling you what to believe? How do you, how do you like that? Oh, that tree of life. Oh, that tree. Oh, there's only, oh, oh, there's only certain trees you can eat from. What about that one over there? Why can't you have from that one? Wouldn't a loving God let you do whatever you want to do? Right? Oh, choice, right? 
She should be able to do whatever you want to do. Wouldn't a loving God want to do that? And hey, 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 that tree, isn't it the knowledge tree? Uh, he's trying to stop you from discovering on your own. And there are the beginnings of the mess that we are in. Ezekiel goes on to speak about, and I quote, the multitudes of his iniquities. It goes on to speak about judgment and terror. This is a far cry. This angelic being falling, rebelling, pulling down others with him. This is a far cry from the angels hovering above the courts of God saying, holy, holy, holy. Your way, thy will, not mine. They could sing another song if they wanted to, but they won't because he is holy. They could go somewhere else where maybe they could pull their wings off their face and show their face to the world, but they won't. Oh, to be in the presence of God and submitted to the ways of the Lord. Now, with these holy creatures before us, with Genesis, with Ezekiel before us then, let me connect the dots unless they haven't been connected. The devil was a part of the seraphim. The language of the serpent fits the serpent in Genesis 3. So when you read Isaiah 6, and you see these mighty angels in the court of God going, holy, holy, holy. This serpent used to do that. He was made to be a worshiper of God. He was given life to worship God. And you see what he did with it. And you see what he's up to, even now, to this very day. The pandemonium, the pandemonium, the pandemonium goes back to him. And the pandemonium goes back to our mother and father. They cannot blame him. Oh, the devil made me do it. No, sir. I have read the book of Genesis. You were given dominion. You didn't have to do that. I share about all of this because this is how we make sense of Uvalde, Texas. This is how we make sense of the violence. And you know what? It hasn't stopped, has it? Wednesday this week, an eight-year-old boy was riding in the car with his dad to visit South Carolina from New Hampshire. He was shot and killed by a man who was randomly firing at passing cars. The dad was hit in the leg and survived. The son was hit in the neck and died. Just driving. An eight-year-old dead. The same day, a man opened fire in a building in St. Francis Hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma, killing four people, injuring a number of others. On Friday, there was a man who stabbed a doctor and two nurses here in Southern California at the Encino Hospital Medical Center. Last, last night, I uh, saw the stats that Chicago, this, this weekend, has at least uh, one killed and 14 injured from weekend shootings. How do we make sense out of this? It's satanic. It's satanic. They can't say that on the news, though, can they? Uh, because the church has been sequestered. We've been kicked out. We're politically incorrect. P spot some UFOs. Oh, you can do that on TV. But you can't talk about the devil. And isn't that exactly how he gains power? By convincing the world he doesn't exist? Isn't that what's so uh, deadly about camouflage and war? Uh, right, our soldiers don't go to war wearing bright orange. Maybe when you're hunting deer, but not when you're trying to win a war, you camouflage. He has effectively camouflaged himself and convinced the world that he doesn't exist because that's how he gets you. 
And so in the, in the previous weeks, we've been building on these things so that we can tackle this problem of evil. And as we have been tackling this problem of evil, what I've been trying to teach you is that it is both rational and it is also emotional. On the rational side of things, right, we want to be able to answer, and I'm trying to equip you to be able to engage the rational claim that there can't be a God if there's evil. Now with that, there is an emotional side about how we deal with people's aversion to God uh, in, in the face of things, because often people will hide behind the intellectual, but really what's going on is something emotional. And so last week I tried to, you know, begin to pull this back, fo focusing a lot on the rational, and this week I, I want to continue this rational problem for the coexistence of God and evil. Keep your Bibles open to Isaiah, because it's reminding us of the power of God in the face of this claim that we're looking at this week. If God is so powerful, how can he allow these things to happen? Now, when we answer this question, we are doing something called theosity. Theos is a word for God. Dike is a part of a word group that means to uh, give justification for. In fact, that's where our doctrine of, of justification comes, when God declares us righteous in his courtroom. Uh, uh, Dikaiosune. Dike just means to, to give an answer for, to give justification for. So how do we justify God being good and powerful? How can you believe in Isaiah 6 when you watch the news, Pastor Matt? Well, uh, one, I begin with the very beginning, as we have been doing, and we look at the theosity of Scripture. And we see where human violence begins. Uh, we, 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 we see with the origins of humanity. We see this God of love who creates the world for his love. And we see how the world rejects his love. We see how God created humanity with a, with a free will to choose from the tree of life or to choose from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and, and last week I, I shared with you that, that, that humanity has used that will, that great gift, to, to do evil. And, and so there, you can't point the finger at God. God has given us a great gift, and we, we have used it against the creation. And so, so moving from this uh, point with regard to previous week, we'll continue building on this problem. Uh, the question that a, a, lot, a lot of times people say is, well, what makes a person sin then? And implicit in the question is we're still looking for another excuse. I must say that the question itself really reveals a deep problem. What makes someone sin? There is no one or no thing that makes me sin. It's my choice. Oh, we're all about choice, except when it's like you've done something wrong. Then we're looking for excuse. I'm pro-excuse. What made Adam sin? He did. What made his wife sin? Uh, she did. What, 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 what made the, the, the devil sin? We saw that in Ezekiel 28. In his chest, he did. And yet, people will still try to blame God. Look at the biblical explanation for this. This is a great cross-reference for you to uh, commit to memory or at least to be able to reference. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he does not tempt anyone. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Don't be deceived. Starts in the chest. And that's where you want to catch it, by the way, before you start acting out on it. So, so there it is. There it is. What makes me sin? Uh, I do. But we live in this no-fault culture, and we want to blame it on all sorts of things. We have not progressed much further than Adam and Eve, who claim the devil made me do it. We blame disease 
we blame, we, we, you know, I'm sick, I got this disease, or it's, it's my family, it's the way they raised me, or it's my school, it's the way they educated me or didn't educate me, or it's the police, it's the way they did this to me, or it's the media, it's, it's this, it's, it's that, it's this. We're always blaming someone and something else. Now look back at the passage and see what Isaiah did in the face of sin. Does he blame someone or something else? Let's see. Verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. And I live among a people of unclean lips. It's individual and corporate responsibility. I'm soiled by them, and I've sinned myself. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah acknowledged his sin before God. He confesses, I am unclean. He confesses on behalf of his community. They are unclean. They are unclean. I am unclean. He doesn't point the finger at the community and say, they did this to me or whatever. He says, no, they're unclean and I'm unclean. And he cries out to God. And then what happens? Verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand and he had taken it from the altar with the tongs and he touched my mouth and he said, behold, it has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. So there's the image of the altar, sacrifice. Again, the portal of the heavens, sacrifice, heavens, sin, separation from God. And he takes from that and brings forgiveness and redemption to the one who has confessed his sin. Now let's talk about, let's continue building God's power in light of the coexistence of evil. Keep Isaiah open, but let's kind of do some apologetic stuff here. So David Hume, the great 18th century Scottish philosopher, used this argument in his Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, which was published in 1779. We looked at Hume last week. And he asked, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. And so this raises the question or the, the uh, inquiry, is God all-powerful and he doesn't stop evil? Do you, do you get it? I mean, think, think about the, you know, the claim that's on the table. If God is all-powerful, why does he permit violence? Is he just not able to stop it? Imagine a, a police officer who doesn't rescue a woman from being raped, and he just stands there and watches it happen. Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, imagine a fireman who watches a daycare center burn to the ground while, there's, while he's holding the hose. I mean, we, we even saw this with Uvalde. You know, it's kind of a scandal, and we're still asking the question. I saw a lot of police officers out there uh, holding parents from running in. Why weren't they running in? Like, intuitively, we feel a certain way about that. Why isn't God running in? Why is, why is he out there holding the parents back? I mean, imagine a doctor who watches his patient suffer from a disease when he's got the prescription in his pocket to heal it. What would we say about a doctor like that? He should lose his job, shouldn't he? They should all lose their jobs, shouldn't they? All right, then. Well, what about God? Isaiah 6 sounds like he's really powerful. He can't stop a guy from shooting some bullets. Now, we looked last week at some of the possible answers. People say, well, maybe God doesn't have enough power. We consider Rabbi Harold Kushner in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and that's what he pauses. God, God doesn't have enough power. Incidentally, listen to the title, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. What's wrong with that? There are no good people. No, not one. That's what the Bible says. So when bad things happen, the reality is that's what I had coming. Not, oh, but I'm good. No, no, no you're not. So the whole, thing, the whole thing is built on you know, shaky sand. Uh, well, maybe God doesn't see it coming is another option. 
considered, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the claim that maybe God doesn't know the future. You have, uh, you know, process theology and open theism and these other things that I don't have time to get into. But people who think God, God doesn't know the future, he's just sort of like going along in time with us. And, you know, 9-11 happens. And he's like, what? That's crazy. And then he like sort of goes down there and starts helping people or whatever. And so he's like the firemen and the, the heroes who ran into the building. You know, God's good, but why didn't he stop it? Well, he just didn't see it coming. Uh, we, we talked about the problems with that last week. And um, in particular, the Bible paints a picture of God that is much different. God knows the future, holds the future, ordains the future. Again, going back to what I said at the beginning, there's God who is and there's God men want, and the two aren't the same. And what I'm submitting to you is, see on your outline, that we've misunderstood the nature of evil and the nature of power. And that's how we begin to make sense out of this and have conversations with people. We want to talk about the nature of power, omnipotence biblically defined, which you see on your outline here. Now, omnipotence, omni, all, potent, power. God is all-powerful. Now, with that, that needs to be qualified because God is all-powerful in what is logically consistent to his nature and his will. So, for example, we, we saw already in James, God cannot tempt people to sin, and God is not tempted by sin. But, but isn't he powerful? Can he sin if he, if, you know, like, that sounds like he doesn't have the power to sin. Yeah, that's exactly right. He doesn't have the power to sin. Well, then he's not all-powerful. Your definition of all-powerful is a wrong definition, so calm down. Uh, all-powerful, that is to say, he does what is logically consistent to his nature and his will. The biblical term that gets used is pantocrato. It, it is a term that we find uh, inside of Revelation 19.6. The adjective omnipotent uh, occurs there. Most English translations will say things like almighty. Hallelujah, for the Lord, the almighty reigns. Uh, the Greek word for the rendering almighty, pantocrator, it occurs several in several passages throughout the Bible, and it connotes this idea of authority and sovereignty and ability. And, and this is what we find all throughout the Bible. Let me give you a sampling of some, some text here. We read in Psalm 135, verse 6, that the Lord does whatever he pleases in the earth and the heaven and the seas and all the deeps. We read in Luke 137, cross-reference Job 42.2, that uh, there is nothing that is impossible with God. Job 42.2 says that God can do all things and then none of his plans are thwarted. We read in the Bible, Job 28, Hebrews 4, that God sees everything. Job 28, 24 says God sees everything under the heavens. Hebrews 4, 13, as a cross-reference, says that nothing is hidden from his sight. In fact, God sees everything down to the finest details. Psalm 147, verse 4 says that God knows the numbers of the stars and that he has named them all. God is abundant in strength. We see in Psalm 147, verse 5, great is our Lord, abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite, infinite. It knows no end. We read in Matthew 6, 8 uh, and, and verse 32 that God knows the future. In Matthew 6, 8, it speaks of how God knows things even before we ask. I know what you're going to say next. I already know. God is all-powerful. This is, this is all throughout the Bible. God is all-powerful. You see it all over the place. You never see God going, Ooh, I'd really like to help, but mm, I can't. Ooh, let me try and muster enough strength. He never strains. He never strains. Never pulls a muscle. It's just like God's love. He just he overflows with it. You say, but what about evil? What about evil? Friends, he has willed a universe in which evil is present. You have to deal with that. If you've got a problem with it, uh, Vernon McGee has this line where he's like, if you've got a problem with how God has created the world, well, I'll tell you what, friend, when you get your own world, you can do it how you like. <laughs> you know, 
That's not going to happen. Unless you're a Mormon or something, but that stuff's not true. Uh, God is using and has ordained to use wickedness in this world as a part of his redemption plan. I think of Joseph and his brothers. If you know the Genesis account, there's not time to do it. But his brothers did him really, really super dirty, uh, left him for dead. And Joseph's response at the end of it all was that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about his present result to preserve many people alive. Think about Jesus on the cross. Think of the violence against Jesus. Think of the innocence of Jesus. And it was through that evil act of violence that God was bringing about the redemption of the world. The redemption of the world. Now, sure, the atheist is going to say that God is not powerful because evil exists, but much of what I said has already covered the, the rational retorts in this. But we still, you know, we still need to press back and bring it back to the context of the gospel because our rational responses aren't going to bring anyone close. We need to bring them to the cross, the ultimate act of evil, the ultimate person of innocence, the only person of innocence that has died at the hands of evil to set a people free. Now, in terms of illustrations that are effective, you have this on your outline, an illustration, a thought experiment that I like to use in conversation with people. Imagine you are the strongest person in the world. In fact, imagine you are the strongest in the universe. You can lift up cars, buildings. In fact, you can lift up your whole block. For that, imagine, uh, for that you can lift up the whole city. You can lift up the whole country. Uh, you, you know, if you had a place to stand, you could lift up the whole planet Earth, even from the whole solar system. So you're pretty strong. You have so much strength that you can do anything that strength lets you do. Now, imagine that I come along and I want to challenge your strength. And being a wise guy, I say, let's put your strength to the test, Mr. Hotshot. And you're like, all right, bring, bring it on, Matt Jones. I'll, I'll do that. And I say, okay, you're really the strongest. Then take this piece of paper right here and draw me a square circle. Draw me a square circle, Mr. Strong. You know, and he's like, uh, I can't do that. Aha, you are not that strong after all. Now think about the scenario. What's wrong here? Well, my test has nothing to do with strength. It's not a matter of how strong you are. You cannot do something that is self-contradictory like drawing a square circle because squares aren't circles. It's self-contradictory. You can't draw it because it's a contradiction in terms. Likewise, uh, you know, this, this, likewise, you can't uh, draw a married bachelor or something like this. It's a contradiction in terms. So the test is unrelated to power. So to the claim that God is not all-powerful because evil exists is completely unrelated to his power. I've already explained uh, in previous sermon, alluded to today, that uh, it is a good thing for us to have free will. God made us with free will. You see in Genesis, him saying, it's good, it's good, it's good, and him giving them choice, so free will is good. Hence, taking away free will is evil. So then to take away the possibility of evil would be evil. It is self-contradictory like drawing square circles. Thus, the atheist must realize the self-refuting nature of the claim that is being asserted, that there can't be a God if evil exists, because the only other option would be an act of evil itself, so it's a catch-22. For God to make a world in which humans are genuinely free and have no possibility of doing wrong is a square circle. Morally free humans, by definition, must have the, the ability to do evil and violence. The beauty of the Christian faith is that it professes a God who did a good thing in making humans free and loving them even when they do wrong and even cleaning up the mess and even coming himself, the eternal God who's Father, Son, and Spirit, and dying at the hands of wicked men in order to set us free. That's the beauty. That's the power. That's the message. Some have said that if God knows the future, then he knew all the tragedy that would come, so why would he create anyway? Because he loves us. The love that he has outweighs the tragedy. 
If I knew that my wife would betray me, uh, I, I, I would still go through with it all. Because I love her. I love our kids that she has given to me. If I knew that my son was to betray me in his teens or in his adult life, uh, I, I would go through with it yet again if I were asked the question, because I love him. Doesn't love make you go to great lengths? When I was a teenager, I recall having a conversation with my father about this. Uh, his, 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 his marriage to my mother ended ho horribly. There was an affair. I remember watching the devastation of it all as we were piecing it all together, and the devastation in particular that it had on my dad. See another man. It caught the other man one time, and we were in the car. I'll spare you the story. It was... I, about to go fist to cuff, it was pretty intense. I asked my dad, if you had to do it all over again, Pop, would you do it? He said, absolutely. Why, Dad? Because I love you boys. You see, knowing the heartbreak, my dad would do it all over again for his boys. And so too, God created, God created this world. And he does this for his people. He does this for Israel. He does this for his church. He did this for us boys. Now, mind you, all the illustrations fall apart because not, God's not looking in the future and seeing what we would do. On the contrary, God has, hear me, ordained this. He's ordained this. He's created a world with this. And that's part of the problem with the problem of evil is that when you reject the Creator and you're trying to make sense out of it, you can't make sense out of it because you've rejected the sovereign over creation. And that inevitably leads then to this emotional problem. And that emotional problem at root is you've rejected your father. And you're looking at the world trying to make sense out of it when you've rejected his, his love. And so there's going to be a, a, a faulty logic in this. There's going to be faulty emotions in this. And this is an emotional problem for man and for God. Now, I, I say, and for God, because I, I you know, and even in my illustration of my, of my dad having a heart and going through it all again, God, God's impassable, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't have emotions. God has is love, and God has anger, and wrath, and mercy, and all these emotions, but his emotions aren't going through successive moments like you and I. His emotions aren't mutating and changing. God will never, let me put it like this, wake up on the wrong side of the bed. You never have to ask God in prayer, dear God, thank you for this food. And oh, God, how are you doing today? You know, how do you feel today? His emotions are perfect. His emotions are absolutely perfect. And yet ours are constantly leading astray. They're constantly changing. They go up, they go down. If you've ever wrestled with anxiety and depression, that's one of the things that gets intense with it is you begin to believe that I'm never going to get out of this. And then it just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. Thankfully, our emotions change and, and highs can come. But the emotional problem with man is as much as we go up and down, we're just going to keep on hitting against this. And it comes back to our free will. And it comes back, of course, to God's free will. Oh, people like to talk about man's free will. They like to talk about man having a choice. But what about God's choice? What about God's prerogative? He is the creator after all. Doesn't he have a right to make a world the way that he wants? And in his sovereign plan, he has saw fit to make a world such as this. 
and, 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 and if you want to balk at this, keep in mind that in his sovereign plan, he saw fit to ordain that the son would come in and die at the hands of it all. So it comes back to sin, and it comes back to the Savior, and it comes back to our need of him. And I'm talking about this this morning, and I, I don't want to just describe this this morning. I want to invite you to this, to come to the God who is, to come to his son, and like, like Isaiah, cry out, woe is me, I am ruined. I have sinned. And just look, just look at the world. It's everywhere. Set me free, Lord. Set me free. And let me tell you, let me tell you, you cry out to him for forgiveness, you cry out to the God who is, you will never regret it. He will absolutely set you free from this wicked and perverse generation that is. Speaking of wickedness and perversion, that is the glaring issue at hand with the problem of evil. And I shared this with you last week, that when people say, well, if there's a God, why, why, why is there evil? There can't be a God because of all the evil in the world. But I tell you what, that objection can't even get started unless God exists. So the objection has to assume what is trying to disprove. It has to assume that God doesn't exist, right? But it's presuming that he does exist to raise the objection. What do I mean? Well, you can't get a category of evil unless you have an objective lawgiver who substantiates what is good and evil. Follow me. What is evil? Evil isn't, you know, it's not like a number, it's not like matter or anything like this. It's immoral. Where do morals come from? They come from laws. Where do laws come from? They come from lawgivers. You can't have evil unless you have a lawgiver so if there isn't a God, you can't get started with objecting to his existence with the category of evil, because you can't have evil unless there's a God. If there is no God, all you have are subjective human experiences and ideas about what is evil and what is not. In some cultures, in some cultures, uh, they, th there's cannibalism. In some cultures, there's not. Who are you to judge? Love your neighbor, eat your neighbor, to each his own, you know? Who are you to judge, right? That is the postmodern uh, mantra. That is the postmodern catechism. You are not allowed to judge people. And I'll say something or posit something, you know, Jesus is the only way. So are you saying other religions are wrong? Uh, yeah, I am. Well, who are you to judge those other religions? I go, you think it's wrong to judge? Yeah, it's wrong to judge. So why are you judging me then? Isn't it wrong to judge? It sure sounds like you're judging me for judging them. You should stop judging. You should follow your own advice, mister. So the objection itself, that is the glaring issue for it all. It, it can't even get started. I hope you still have your Bibles open to Isaiah because I want to land, want to conclude with Isaiah. I'm trying to equip you to understand what's going on in the world. As a pastor, it is my job to equip the saints for the work of the harvest. As a pastor, as a congregation, it is our job to make disciples. And so if things are going on in the world, I, I want to go, okay, church, like what does the Bible, how does the Bible, and so that you can go out in the world and, and you could share and, and you could go, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn off the news for a second. I'm gonna, I'll have public policy arguments and talk trash about different politicians that I think are ruining everything or whatever. I'm going to do that. But none of that is going to set the captives free. So I need, I need to herald Christ. I need to keep that as a priority. I need to come to church hungry for that. I need to hear this, this message. I need to invite others to this message. 
that people are going to be offended by me. It's not going to be, be because of my public policy. It's going to be because of my Lord and my Savior. And I'm not ashamed to represent Him. He died on a cross, a bloody death for us. And so we conclude with that because we're about to approach the table of communion where the very thing that I've been describing, the very thing that I've been inviting you to, we're about to see pictured in front of us in a little cup and a little piece of bread. But by way of conclusion, I want to remind you of what I'm doing this morning. I'm, I'm not equipping you with arguments for argument's sake. I'm equipping you with arguments for sake of bearing witness. And if you stop with the arguments of going, well, who are you to judge? Well, 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 you can't have evil. Don't stop at the problem of evil. Show them their Savior. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Sin is confessed. And then what happens? Mission is given. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. It's not our job to convince. It's not our job to convert. It is our job to go. Isaiah and the pattern of the prophets is picked up in the apostles and it's picked up in the church. God has always had a missionary community that he's sending out into a fallen world and telling them to go and to herald the news of the one in the old days who shall come and in the days that we are in now in this age to herald the news of him who has come and is coming again. The king has come. The king has come. He was slaughtered at the hands of the enemy army in order to set captives free, to, to bring them into his kingdom. And he will bring his kingdom. And he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so we go. And it's not our job. It's not our job. It's not our job. We can't open that heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, as we recently saw. Look at what he says in the next verse, in verse 9. He says, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but you do not perceive. Keep on looking, but you do not understand. The people aren't going to get it. The people are going to look at you weird. The, pe the people, they're not going to see that. But guess what? That's not your job anyway. You're still supposed to go. They don't want to hear me. That's fine. You just keep on, you just keep on, you keep on going. Nothing's happening. I share, you know, no, 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 you keep on going. Your neighbors, you keep on going. At work, you keep on. Parents, keep on telling your kids. You keep on telling them. You keep on telling them. Oh, they don't believe it. Oh, it doesn't matter. You just keep, you keep on telling them. Because that message, that news, is what God has sovereignly ordained to use to unlock, to unlock salvation to those who are far from him. Uh, folks know that this is not just about their emotions. They're covering up the real issue. Romans chapter 1 tells us that they know that God exists. They know it. God, God has placed that in their hearts. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes, He's placed eternity in our hearts. I think about the way these violent tragedies are spoken of by people who reject God. W what are the kinds of things that they say? This event is tragic. They were kids. They were kids. They died before their time. This is a, a, an, un, an untimely death. We see time and time again. They were kids. They were kids. As if, if he ran into a convalescent home, it would have, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, they were going to die anyway. Oh, they were kids. They died before their time. It was untimely, we're told. What do you mean untimely? Deep down, we believe that a person dies before their time. But what does that mean, their time? 
It means appointed, an appointed time. We all have, even the way we talk, we're showing, we have an awareness of there being a God who's appointing things. Isn't that a tacit admission that their life had a purpose? A purpose that was beyond what the individual intended? A grander purpose, a transcendent purpose, which was not fulfilled because it was cut down early? Doesn't that imply that there's one who was giving purpose to the creation? Responses like this are spontaneous. It happens, and then the newscasters are there, and they, oh, we all talk this way. We know there's a God bearing testimony to something that is deep down inside of us. There is a God. He's established a purpose for us, a purpose that is not fulfilled when someone is struck before their time. But we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, and it's referenced there on your outline in the conclusion. Listen to the word of the Lord, church. Inasmuch as it is appointed to man to die once, and after this comes judgment. And that's the reality of it. Are we ready for the judgment that is to come? So as we close our service in song, as we come to the table, when we take this, this cup in our mouth, cups inside of Scripture are used as symbols of wrath. Jesus drank the cup for us. He took the bullet for us. The car was coming. It was going to hit us. He pushed us out of the way, and he died in our place. This is your time to respond to the word if you haven't already. If you've come today and you don't believe in him, today's the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, just give it up, let it go, confess your sin, come to him. Inasmuch as it has been appointed a man to die once, and after this comes the judgment, Hebrews 9.27, listen to verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Let's come to the table awaiting our king who has come, who's victorious over the darkness of the kingdom of men. Let's celebrate him. Let's sing to him. And let's picture this message that we've heard here this day. Let's pray first before we do. Father, we thank you for the table that has been prepared for us. We think of the psalmist who spoke of a table prepared in the presence of our enemies, of a cup that runs over. And Lord, we would be enemies far from your table sitting in the back, watching, laughing, mocking, and yet you saw fit to, 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 to pull us against our will, kicking and screaming, and to give us a new heart that would no longer uh, kick and scream, but would dance and sing for you. And so as we come to the table here today, we confess, woe is me. I'm ruined. We're ruined. But by the one who was ruined for us on the cross of Calvary, and Lord, we beseech you, Lord of the harvest, for our loved ones who are far from you, who in times like this tragedy will, will, will use it as yet another reason to not come to you. And Lord, we pray that you would place a heart of flesh where there is a heart of stone. I pray here this morning that you would do just that, that you would cause new life to come. We offer these songs of worship unto you in this time of communion unto you. For you alone are worthy of our praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.